0: Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We welcome you to Marsh Chapel on this Sunday as we join together in scripture and praise and in praise of God. Whether you are seated here in the nave of the chapel, listening via WBUR at 90.9 FM in the greater Boston area, listening over the internet at WBURR.org, or listening later via podcast. Please know that you are a valued part of our community. My name is the Reverend Dr. Karen Coleman, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Associate Chaplain for Episcopal Ministry here at Marsh Chapel. Our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, is traveling this week and sends his warm regards to each of you. Today, we gather for the first Sunday after Epiphany with our special guest preacher, Dr. Jessica Chica. Dr. Chica serves as the university chaplain for international students. We gather today to worship God and be reminded of the divine gifts of grace and love which join us together in the body of Christ. Let us stand as we are able in praise of God.
1: Mm. Oh Lord.
0: Let us pray. Father in heaven, who at the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan proclaimed him your beloved Son and anointed him with the Holy Spirit, grant that all who are baptized into his name may keep the covenant they have made and boldly confess him as Lord and Savior, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Amen. To those who believe in Jesus Christ, he gives the power to become the children of God. May the Lord who has begun this good work in us bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks, Thanks be to God.
2: A lesson from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The word of the Lord. Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 29 with the Antiphon. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He, he makes, makes Lebanon skip like, like a calf, considering like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice, the voice of, the, of the, Lord the Lord causes oaks to, to whirl. whirl and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all say, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace.
3: Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Glory Glory to you, you, O Lord." Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Grace and peace to you from God our Creator and our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Welcome to a new year, a new decade, a time that years ago seemed so far off in the future, 2020. We're solidly into this new year now, having finished our holiday festivities and returned to our regular lives of work and school, although our students still get one more week of winter break to enjoy. We're back to early morning risings, rush hour commutes, and the horizon of what this new year will have in store for us individually in our local and national communities and in the world. Like some of you, I was fortunate enough to spend my holiday break with my family. Christmas and New Year's fell on Wednesdays this year, extending my time with them just a little bit longer than normal and allowing for some deep rest and relaxation. It also meant that I was treated to my mom's cooking and baking. Baking is a big part of my family's Christmas celebrations. My mom mixes her fruitcake batter sometime in November every year so that it can be steamed and then wrapped in sherry-soaked cheesecloth and then in aluminum foil, stored in our large black lobster pot in the basement until it is appropriately aged and ready to be distributed to family Friends and neighbors at Christmas time. And I know what you're thinking fruitcake is the ultimate Christmas time gift punchline, but people love my mom's fruitcake. I think the sherry might have something to do with it. In addition to fruitcake, there's a day of pump, baking pumpkin bread, and then, of course, baking Christmas cookies, sugar jumbles, peanut butter Hershey Kiss cookies, mincemeat cookies, which are my dad's favorite peanut butter, and, of course, the old standard chocolate chip. All of this baking in my youth has led to my own love of baking as an adult. But there's something about the way that my mom makes things that I still haven't quite been able to capture. Maybe it's because the recipes I have inherited from her aren't actually the recipes that she uses. For example, the recipe I have for pumpkin bread, which she copied from her own recipe card, is incorrect. I only found this out at Christmas this year. Number one, she doesn't use nutmeg, even though it's in the recipe. Only cinnamon. Number two, the recipe calls for three cups of sugar. The recipe yields six loaves, so it's not as sugary as you're thinking. But my mom only uses one cup of sugar. Just one. It doesn't say that anywhere in the recipe that I have. Granted, the pumpkin bread that I made this year still came out fine, even with using nutmeg and three cups of sugar, but it didn't taste like how I remembered. Those little tweaks and shifts in family recipes often yield better results, but we only find them out by either making mistakes or through direct communication from the recipe owner. There are many other recipes I could list where my mom instructs to add things like flour and until it's enough, whatever that means. Actions you can only learn through practice trial and error. The recipe is a guideline, but not the rule of how to get things just right. Sometimes it's through relationship with another that we really find out the right way to do something. Many of us struggle with wanting to get things right. People seek a plan, a direction, a recipe, if you will, for finding the best way to create the most fulfilling life, whatever that might mean for them individually. We compare ourselves to others and feel less accomplished or like we don't know which path to take sometimes. Wouldn't it be great to have a recipe or a set of instructions that can help us learn what to do when aspects of our lives don't turn out the way that we expected? How can we find those necessary edits or tricks that can help us accomplish the things we need to do? There's a plethora of decisions and actions that may worry us today. Some of them are personal, like how to live a healthy, generous, and loving life. But many are beyond our personal control. We see our communities divided by ideologies and bigotry. We witness global powers threatening, and in some cases, executing attacks on other countries leaving civilians injured or killed and provoking fear, anxiety, and hatred. Natural disasters such as the wildfires in Australia and the compounding earthquakes in Puerto Rico, some on scales we've never witnessed before, destroy homes, habitats, take lives, and make recovery seem improbable. Clearly, these kinds of problems have no set out guides for response but we do have ethical insights from our religious tradition that can help guide us in times of trouble such as these. Combined with our lived experience and our relationship with others, we learn how to best live out our Christian calling in the world. Sometimes making mistakes, but hopefully moving forward towards sharing love and establishing justice. Prophetic language is an important part of the Judeo-Christian heritage. The prophets found in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, as many re- Christians refer to it, perform a variety of functions for the Israelite community. Prophets have the power to see what, and name what is happening presently, while at the same time bringing attention to the possibilities of what could be. They operate at multiple levels within the community, as an ethical guide, a theological interpreter, a political critic, and an advocate for social welfare. The prophetic voice changes as the community and its circumstances change. When the people or leaders are are not living into the will of God, prophets bring harsh warnings of potential outcomes and remind them of the important commitment they've established with God through their covenantal relationships. When the community is in disarray, prophets remind the people of their ethical responsibilities to one another and to God. Prophets can also challenge the status quo to bring about necessary change in the hearts and minds of leaders and people, sometimes challenging temporal authority in order to seek truly divinely inspired justice for the community. The prophetic voice carries the nuances of behavior that go beyond the regular teachings and beliefs found in sacred texts and practices connecting the abstract ideals of God's will to, the, to direct actions in particular contexts. These voices provide the guidance similar to notes scribbled in the margins of a long-established recipe. In today's reading from Isaiah, we are confronted with or isaiah transmitting the words of God to the Israelites, who are living in a time of exile. Although the language used initially is the singular he, God is speaking to the community of Israel as a whole. They collectively are the servant. The Babylonians have just captured Judah and destroyed the temple in this context, leaving the Israelites without a home and with a feeling of hopelessness. The Israelites reasonably could have been so anguished and angry about their exile that they could, they could have not trusted in God. They could have disbanded as a community and lost trust in one another. They could have turned on other communities and harmed them in their frustration. But instead, the voice of God through the prophet reminds them of their right relationship with God and others. What is appropriate is not to take out frustration and anger on others, but to be a light to the nations of the world, a community established in justice and righteousness, a community that leads, not by harming those who are oppressed, but who strives to cease oppression from existing. It establishes a community that does not see their defeat in Judah as an end, but as the possibility of a new beginning. In today's gospel reading, the concept of what is right or appropriate comes to us in a different way. Jesus approaches John to be baptized by him. John doesn't understand this request. To him, Jesus has more authority. Jesus should baptize him but Jesus knows for what has to take place in his life that he must be baptized by John for it will fulfill all righteousness. It is the right way to do this. The right execution of being in relationship with one another for Jesus is not to assert his authority by becoming the one who baptizes, but in modeling that through his own baptism, God calls us into holy relationship. John's calling in the world is to be a baptizer. It is his vocation. For Jesus to disregard John's calling in the world, particularly as a prophet for telling Jesus' own arrival, would go against God's will. In the servant relationship that is formed by Jesus' presence, he reverses the structure of authority. The scene of Jesus' baptism is an indication of what his ministry will look like. He goes into the wilderness to the literal margins of society and is baptized because it is the right action to take. We also know John's baptism of Jesus is right because the Holy Spirit appears and the voice of God states that Jesus is God's beloved, God's son, with whom God is well pleased. Matthew echoes the introduction of Isaiah 42 that we read as part of today's lectionary as well, connecting the mission of the beloved servant with Jesus's ministry. John and Jesus' relationship is one that establishes the correct order of events, but the presence of God in three forms creates yet another relationship which we echo in our own baptism. We enter into a relational community. With God, of course, but also with those who follow Jesus' teaching. Jesus is claimed by God, just as we are claimed by God through our own baptism. God chooses us to be a part of the large family found through Christ. We are all siblings together, sharing in the love and care exemplified by Jesus and sustained in us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus instructs us us through his ministry and teaching what God's will is to look like in the world, and through following that will, we will create a more just society. In our baptism, we take on the call to fulfill all righteousness. Part of our relationship with the divine is to act faithfully in alignment with that which God calls us to do. While divine will is not always easy to discern, we don't have doves descending or the voice of God proclaiming us to others. We have basic tenets which we know are central to our beliefs. Jesus' ministry and death teaches us how God's will can be lived out. Loving our neighbor and our enemy. Seeking justice for those who are voiceless, poor, oppressed, or imprisoned. Coming to get coming together in community to worship and share our lives with one another, practicing forgiveness against those who have wronged us. While we may know these ideas to be central to our identity as Christians, complex social, political, and ethical situations can cause us to question what exactly is the right way to go about living out our faith. Earlier this week, I was seated at a table with religious professionals from around the Boston area. We all work on college or university campuses and help students navigate their spiritual journeys, asking big questions, facing the realities of today within our students' personal histories and identities. While this meeting was originally convened to discuss an intercollegiate interfaith experience, we ended up discussing the overall climate on our campuses and the best ways in which we could support our students. The college campus is a microcosm of the outside world. It may not necessarily reflect all of the challenges of the world completely, but In some cases, it amplifies conversations that only simmer slowly underneath the cultural milieu of the rest of the country or the world. In a time like ours, on the precipice of an election, my colleagues and I worried if rhetoric would become more vitriolic than it already has been, and how we would weather possible challenges in our community this year. With the rise in anti-Semitic acts, bigoted violence against people of color, assertions of political leaders as demigods, and the continued exclusion of LGBTQ people from religious leadership, students have plenty of questions about how best to navigate confrontational situations or whether to engage in them at all. We ended up pausing our meeting to hold a 45-minute discussion about allyship and what that means for us as administrators, as people of faith, as religious leaders, and as those who are in positions of power in comparison to those who are experiencing oppression? What does it mean to bring together people who share opposing views? When is it a healthy way of learning and listening? And when is it unhealthy unhealthy and abusive? When do we encourage students to have conversation even if they don't agree? And when is it okay for them to not participate in those conversations? How do we execute this kind of work in a way that is supportive, truthful, and generous, while still challenging that which is hateful and stands in opposition to our beliefs? How can we encourage our students to take part in this work, and when is it time for us to step in? We want to seek justice for our students, but we also don't want to interfere in conversations that may not be our places to fight. What we discovered in our discussion was that our need to be in right relationship within these situations depended on us identifying who we are, that is, the multiple identities that we each hold, and knowing when our voices were needed to amplify amplify those who are facing oppression. As one of my colleagues put it, we need to be hearing in a new way those who are hurting, and then focusing on how those relationships matter. It is through this self-reflection that we can see the ways in which our society may privilege certain aspects about our particular existence that prevents us from fully understanding the harm experienced by others. For Christians, we can rest in the assurance that we are baptized in the name of the Triune God, that God bestows grace upon us no matter how difficult the decisions we must make are and the wrong turns or stumbles we may encounter. We must claim our Christian identity in the face of evil and boldly state, I am baptized. As Lutheran pastor and speaker Nadia Bolts Weber reminds us in her, her article, how to say defiantly, I am baptized. She writes, the longer I try to participate in God's redeeming work in the world, the more I am convinced, despite my proclivity to cynicism, that there are indeed forces that seek to defy God. And nowhere are we more prone to encroaching darkness than when we, are stepping into the, when we are stepping into the light. If you have ever experienced sudden discouragement in the midst of heavy decision, healthy decisions, or if there is a toxic thought that will always send you spiraling down, or if there is a particular temptation that is your weakness, then I make the following suggestion. Take a note from Martin Luther's playbook and defiantly shout back at this darkness, I am baptized. Not I was, but I am baptized. I would add to Weber's description that it also benefits us to be listening to those harmed and naming ways that we can be in right relationship with them while also being in right relationship with God. That is what seeking justice is all about. While God gives us the ingredients necessary to live in alignment with divine will, sometimes we need additional instructions that come from observing our context and listening to those set at the margins of society or listening to those with no voice at all. Our desire to live in the righteousness and justice of God that, sets, that God sets as a standard for those called to him is echoed throughout the history of Christianity Figuring out our ethical responsibilities is a challenge, but we are guided by those who came before us and those who are around us now. Martin Luther, in his treatise on the two kinds of righteousness, reminds us what our commitment to seeking justice and righteousness means for those who follow Christ in baptism. He says, "'For you are powerful, not that you may make the weak weaker by oppression,' but that you may make them powerful by raising them up and defending them. You are wise, not in order to laugh at the foolish and thereby make them more foolish, but that you may undertake to teach them as you yourself wish to be taught. You are righteous, that you may vindicate and pardon the unrighteous, not that you may only condemn, disparage, judge, and punish, for this is Christ's example for us. Being in right relationship with one another causes us to change how we see the world. Our willingness to hear the gospel enables us to welcome and include those who feel excluded, to console those who are suffering, and to seek justice for those who face oppression. It opens our eyes to possibility. Our ability to listen to those who suffer and pay attention to the world around us gives us indications of the best ways to apply the gospel in the world. We can see what is, but we can also see what can be in a deeply broken world. Amen.
4: seated. We now come to the time in our service when we turn our hearts and minds to prayer and lift up our lives and ourselves to God. Please assume an attitude and posture of prayer by either remaining seated, standing, kneeling, or coming to the communion rail as we sing together our call to prayer, lead me Lord. Creator of the universe, the great I am who is. We pray before you in heart and mind and spirit. Dear justice we seek and hope we crave, whose servant we name and draw our courage from. Grant us strength in the midst of these distressed times. Remind us of the ever-increasing light above our heads. Remind us that we have passed our winter solstice and that light is reborn and returns in the midst of deep darkness. Keep us from freezing in despair. Warm us. We see you in our great light. May we feel your presence in its warmth. Encourage us. We see you in one another within our messy, honest community. May we see you in those who think and live differently. May we see love relationally and your holiness imbued within relationship. Guide us. We see you in the good and the bad, in the ambiguities of our everyday lives. We are but vapor in your midst, mere moments of memories imprinted onto eternity. May we see you in every moment, may we seek your spirit, and may we redeem the meaning of every point of our existences and histories. Reclaim us, in our short lives, we see you in the brief experiences of hope and liberation. May we seek to bring out the potentialities of all our fellow human beings. May we seek to be your hands and feet and stand against systems that oppress and disadvantage the vulnerable. May we seek to reflect your light and stand as beacons of hope in the midst of narratives that freeze others into despair. God above God, the eternal blessing. We pray that we may, if even for moments, reflect your essence under the imperfect conditions of our existence and through your grace may we reflect this grace onto others so that together may we ignite the unrestrained courage that arises from you within our beings god we pray that for a moment we may sense the grace that we can only scratch the surface of in our finite limited human words a grace that is a covenant to the people a light to the nations that opens the eyes that are blind, that brings out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. It is in the name of Christ, whose brief, heaven's-opening life embodied grace, that we pray, amen. And as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are now bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done
1: The free vision process.
0: Good morning. morning. On behalf of the Marsh Chapel staff, we welcome you again to Marsh Chapel on this unseasonably warm Sunday morning. Thank you for joining us as part of our community of worship today, whether you are here in the sanctuary, listening on the radio, or live stream on the internet, or later via our podcast. Please know that you are a valued member of our community. For those of you joining us in the sanctuary, we invite you to fill out your name and contact information in the red pads found along the aisle of each pew. This will help us to get to know you better and you to get to know one another better. Please join us next Sunday for a very special service. We will not only be honoring the life and work of BU's own, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but will also be part of a week kickoff celebration for the opening of the new Howard Thurman Center. Following our service, please join us for a special gathering to preview the new center, as well as joining us for light refreshments. This semester, the morning study book group will be reading Jim Wallace's Christ in Crisis. In this stimulating analysis, Wallace asserts that Christianity is in decline as the result of a distance between Christians and the daily practice of Jesus. In Eight Questions, he looks at concerns Jesus raised and discusses how the lessons of the gospel apply to the current cultural and political climate. Books and schedules may be obtained in the Marsh Chapel office. The suggested donation for the book is $20. Marsh Chapel will be participating in the Boston citywide reading of the Parable of the Sower written by the award-winning author Octavia E. Butler, on Thursday, February 13th, and Wednesday, March 4th, from 12 to 1.30. Please bring your lunch. Coffee, tea, and dessert will be provided. Please refer to the link on the chapel website for further information and to RSVP to the event. For all other news and upcoming events, please visit the chapel at bu.edu chapel, where there is also the opportunity for online giving. How does God's love abide in anyone who has this world's goods, sees a brother or sister in need, and yet refuses to help? God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. At your table, we present these gifts, symbol of the work you have given us to do. Use it, use us in the service of your world. Blessed be
2: God forever. Amen.
3: Lord bless and keep you. The Lord's face shine on you with grace and mercy. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.